Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day podcast, a look back at some of our favourite moments from the past five days. And we've talked about everything from pregnancy to pies this week with a chat about condoms thrown in. We were also getting into a rather spooky mood in time for Hop Tune and we're joined live in the studio by the Manx Bard. Our guest this afternoon is the Manx Bard, Stacey Astle, the first living person to be given such a title on the island. And Stacey, you have robes to prove that you are the Manx Bard. I do. I have particularly lovely robes um, that were made by the fantastic Miss Davies. Um, they're absolutely lovely. Um, yes, and a fancy hat as well, which goes with them, with some beautiful feathers. Do you wear them at every given opportunity? Um, when I can, but sadly they live they live in the legislative building, so I have to go and uh, get permission to obtain them before I'm allowed to swoosh around in them. So how does this work then? You're a bard for a year. What are you going to do? Well, as I'm the first bard, um, obviously there's there's not really a set pattern for this. Um, we had to put an application together when we put our um, application in to become the bard. And some of the things that I'd really like to focus on um, and mention in this is community kind of work um, and also just making poetry a bit more inclusive. I feel like a lot of people have a perception that poetry has to be very lofty, it has to be done by very intelligent people, it has to be a certain way. And what I'd really, really like to do is by the end of the year manage to subvert that quite a lot. Poetry can be so many things and I think there's some amazing poets out there that just aren't part of maybe the usual scene. We have some amazing poets in that. I'm not devaluing that at all. We have some fantastic talent on the island, but I bet we have a lot more that we just don't know about yet. And I think it'd be fantastic to try and include them more. So how how are you going to do that and how do you convince people that actually they should just give it a go? Some of the things I'm starting to work on, um, currently I'm starting to plan a little competition which will actually be starting to run on Friday this week, which is Haiku Friday. So every every end of the month Friday, I'm going to see if I can ask some of the people on the Manx Bard page if they'd like to write us a haiku. And the best haikus there, we're, we're going to... Um, award a prize for that and also repost it on the page. Just tell us, um, for anybody who doesn't know what a haiku is, what that is. And a haiku is a little poem. It's three lines long. It's the English version of the Japanese haiku and it's derived from there. So it's five syllables for the first line, seven syllables for the second line and five syllables for the third. So it's a very, very short, compact poem and there's not a lot of joining words and in the original Japanese it was usually kind of a little observation about nature or a fleeting moment in that way. Okay, does it have to rhyme? Can it rhyme? It doesn't have to rhyme. That's not a requirement at all because poetry doesn't have to. So uh, there's lots of options with it and you can do a lot of things with those. You know, Stacey, we live now in a text-speak generation. What place does that have, if any, in poetry? I think that's an interesting question, really. Um, in terms of text-speak, if it helps you get your point across and put over what you mean, there's there's no reason not to write that way. Um, you, you can write your poem however you wish, and if it's in text-speak, then that's a great way to do it because it helps you communicate it. Do you write, then, for your audience, I suppose? Do you write for who you're, you're trying to engage with your poem? But do you have to engage someone with a poem? I, I personally wouldn't say that my poems are always written for an audience. I, I kind of write a poem and then I think about, yes, maybe that could be for an audience. But I think part of that's maybe in your delivery. And sometimes poems are very personal and people choose not to share those. Or sometimes they can be just for a specific person and not for a wider audience. So where do you get your satisfaction from then? Because generally a lot of people, when they do perform, it's because they perhaps would like to please an audience. But that's kind of not what you're saying here. 
you can definitely try and please an audience, but I think a lot of people at the open mic night, they're not necessarily going along because they think that all the poems are going to be targeted to them. They're going along to cheer on some people who have been brave enough to stand up and read some poems that they've written. So when you're writing poetry, what satisfies you the most about it? I mean, I like to write a poem that can make people laugh or make people think about something, but I'm not necessarily writing that specifically for them. That can just come out of it too. With the first poem I read, that wasn't written for anyone because I'm sure a lot of people don't really... Well, they definitely don't know my gran and they might not care very much about her. But if it can make them think a little bit about dementia and the effects that can have on people, then that's fantastic. Now, you mentioned um, open mic sessions there. Honestly, Stacey, I can't think of anything worse than standing in a room full of people and not at least getting a few laughs or a round of applause or some acknowledgement that what I had created was worthy of other people to hear. How do you prepare for an event like that? Um, I tend to panic. Um, I can't (laughs) say anybody I know that does the open mics goes into that without at least being a bit anxious about it. It's nobody's going to tell you that it's easy to stand up in front of a room full of people and read to them. Um, But one of the things you can do is obviously go over your work before you get there. Um, But then sometimes I've stood up and written something I've read, like written on the car there. So it's just one of those things where it's such a friendly and inclusive environment that if you come along, nobody's going to boo you off the stage. That's that's not what we're there for. Everybody's there to hear what you've written and just to get that that information to them, really. And in terms of you writing your own poetry, how long does it generally take? It can take huge amounts of time sometimes, or it can be really short. A lot of my poems are written quite quickly. Um, I think a lot of my poems tend to focus on a very quick moment or something like that. The tractor one I've written, I wrote that while I was waiting for the traffic to clear. Um, Then other poems can sit with you for a very long time. I have so many half-written notes on my phone or in my little book that I'm just waiting for the rest of it to happen. And it's just there waiting, but I just can't get the rest of it out right now. Can you make things up on the spot, not wanting to pressure you? I can at times, but now my mind has gone blank as soon as you said that, so I'll say no. (laughs) We wondered how confident you felt about talking to your children about condoms. Now, this is because there's been some new research done by Jurex and there's some really quite shocking statistics about their use, with 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds admitting that they've had sex with more than one person without a condom, but 48% of them saying contracting HIV wasn't something that would happen to them or their friends. Now, this research says it comes down to something that they are calling the invincibility culture. Uh, This survey's been conducted over two years and Jurex has also released a fly-in-the-wall film to go alongside its release. Well, Kate's been speaking to Lauren Petriola-Birch, who's taken part in it, but first asked Radio 1 DJ Gemma Kearney what the invincibility culture actually was. Well, firstly, it's quite terrifying, really, and I don't really know how it's crept up because uh, thank goodness for Jurex doing this research because I feel like as a slightly more grown-up person, just a little bit, having turned 30 this year, that it's passed me by that between the ages of 16 24 at the moment if you are those ages that there is an invincibility culture as such 40 percent of 16 24 year olds admit that they have had sex with more than one person without a condom uh, and more generally it's basically this idea that if you get an sti or an std it's going to be covered by a pill or so and hiv really isn't part of our generation so don't worry about that and it's kind of terrifying i'm really really upset about it to be honest so we need to approach the situation head on and talk about it and as far as I'm concerned let's just use condoms for goodness sake it's that simple yeah (laughs) I mean I don't know where we've gone wrong condoms are so easy to get and they're so easy to use 
I'm I'm worried that there is this slight confidence issue, particularly with young women. They don't feel uh, in a position to ask, you know, boys to use them uh, and that boys don't really want to. Lauren, I don't know what, what you think on the matter, what you've experienced. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I'm 21 and there are, I've got two little sisters. One of them's approaching 16 soon. And I think it's really worrying that as women, we're, we're too shy to take care of our own health. And I think it's important to build up that confidence and feel less insecure about doing the right things for ourselves, especially in that sort of sexual situation. Do you know what? I am 24 and I think it really shocked me to see that I am in that bracket of people and, and of women, as you say. I guess, why do you think we are shy, I suppose, of raising the issue about condoms? I feel generally, you know, we're in a time where people are finding it difficult to talk about a lot of things and when it comes to your kind of everyday awkwardness I think that's where it becomes the most alarming so recently uh, I do a show called The Surgery and we did a show just about everyday awkwardness and and talked about buying condoms and the fact that a lot of people still find it really embarrassing to buy condoms and it's like claiming that back and being able to just walk in, buy a bumper pack and feel uh, rested and assured that yes you're having sex but you're doing it safely do you think one of the issues is that when we talk about contraception, we are so focused, I think, I remember from my own school days, it was so focused on not getting pregnant that almost the health issues are kind of a, an afterthought. Yeah, I think uh, these days we just sort of think that if we do get an STI, we can just go to the clinic, take a pill and it will be fine. Um, but after the Durex campaign, I learned there's a lot of STIs and like sexual transmitted disease which you can still get, which stay with you for life. And we don't really think about that. And just using a condom such an easy solution to have sex and then not have to deal with the aftermath of um, unwanted pregnancies or STIs. Lauren, how old are you? 21. And do you know of people, you know, in your kind of world, in your sphere, in your social scene, people that kind of have this kind of invincibility culture that we're talking about? Yeah, you think it's not going to happen to me. And if it does, it's so easily cured. And I think sometimes for girls as well, yeah, rather than bringing up what would seem an awkward conversation or wearing a condom, you just go along with it. And then afterwards, okay, right, now I have to go to the clinic. Now I have to check that I'm not pregnant. Now I have to check that I haven't got anything when it could just be so easily solved just by having the confidence to, to wear a condom. Do you think there's still an issue surrounding bringing up the use of condoms? Because if you're the kind of girl who, who says please can you use a condom I think there used to be an idea that you were in some way promiscuous. Oh no, that just makes me so upset. I mean, I am an ardent feminist. I'm out and out about that. I talk about empowering uh, yourself and equality in, good, in terms of good. importance a lot. And it's something that I've researched and thought about uh, in my personal life and expressed uh, publicly over the past five years. And I do think equality is so important for us all, for boys and for girls. So for, for women to not feel strong enough uh, and for young women to not be able to protect themselves fundamentally by bringing up the issue of wanting to use a condom um, you've got to eliminate the promiscuity side of it it doesn't it's not attached to uh, a certain way of life or a certain way of being like let's stop putting tags on people and let's yeah if you want to have sex go do it do it lots but just do it in a way that's like guilt free it's going to feel better for the guy to wake up the next day and feel like I did that safely it's going to feel better for the girl to wake up and feel like I did that safely it's as simple as that it's not rocket science eliminate the stats in some ways and just actually focus on the fundamental truth use 
a condom. It's easy. To play devil's advocate again, because I am with you, I am also an ardent feminist. But I think a lot of people would say, if you're not confident to talk about condoms, you simply aren't ready to have sex. How do you feel about that? Um, I suppose, again, that's with the confidence issue, that, you know, you're going to have sex with a boy which maybe you suggest wearing a condom and he doesn't want to, so you don't you don't push the idea. Um, maybe then you shouldn't be having sex, because if you're not confident enough to be responsible for your own health and also somebody else's health as well you know that's all that's all part of it of being mature enough to put the important things first have have sex but be safe and if you're going to be dangerous and you know not look after yourself then maybe you shouldn't be mm, i think we're in such a conflicting time we've got so many messages uh, so many things going on in the world so many like rights and wrongs you know poured out to us on the internet but there are some sort of kind of back to basics and it's like feeling comfortable uh, it's being in touch with your physical self uh, and uh, really making decent decisions but and if you do decide that you want to have sex do, do it in a, do it in a way that's going to make you feel you know a bit better Good. about doing it in an unsafe way it's like it's to do with emotions as well as like health and protection so how can we improve things then is it just having those conversations Absolutely. I am all for nattering, asking questions, speak, speak, speak to people around you. There are many health and sex experts uh, in many areas. Find out your local family planning clinic. Come out with your sweetie bag filled with condoms. Uh, uh, Speak to your GP. That's what they're there for. They're usually awesome. Speak to your mum, your sister, your auntie, or even a teacher at school. There is always someone with a big ear pricked and ready to listen to you. (laughs) I like your use of the word pricked. Exactly. Um, and where can our listeners go for more information? Well, if you go to durex.co.uk, there's plenty up there, including a very specific campaign uh, with a video featuring Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, she's gorgeous, so definitely worth. Uh, but no, we, there's plenty up there. So, you, you know, you can find out further information uh, in your local town, how you can broach the subject of talking about condoms. Just put uh, Durex into a search engine near you and you can find us really easily. And Lauren, have you got one in your handbag now? <laughs> oh god yep <laughs> I got a free goodie bag from the campaign so definitely there's nothing there's nothing better than having loads of condoms even if you're gonna like you know you're not planning on having sex anytime soon it just feels quite just good just in case that was Gemma Kearney and Lauren Pariola Birch speaking to Kate there so we want to know what you think of this so-called invincibility culture is it a real thing how can we counter it and how easy is it to talk to young people our children about condoms we'd love to hear your thoughts text 166177 email women today at maxradio.com and if you have sat down with your child and had that condom chat we'd love to hear how it went our guest today is uh, something of an expert when it comes to pastry having given up a career in finance to sell homemade pies Vicky Quirk, what is it about the pie that you love so much? Pastry. It's all about the pastry. Everybody loves a bit of pastry, don't they? (laughs) And where did you learn to make pies? Well, um, I don't know, really. We used to live in Bristol, and there was a great company called Pie Minister, and we used to go there regularly and eat pies. And what yeah. makes, apart from the pastry, what is it that makes a, a great pie? Because you get, you know, you get your mediocre pies, but what really sets a pie apart? Well, I think the thing apart? about my pies is that um, I like the fact that here on the Isle of Man, you can pretty much make the pie using 100% Manx produce. So you've got your flour from Laxey Flour Mills, you've got your butter from Isle of Man Creameries, you've got your goat meat, for example, from up north, you've got your 
Balavagaraway reared beef from up north. You've got all these great produce that you can put into a pie and you know exactly where it's come from and it's going to be tasty. Well, I mentioned that you gave up a job in the financial industry to do this and we'll talk more about that process of setting up your own business later. But first, take us back to your childhood. I should point out at this point, I have already been told off by your mum uh, for not getting it right about where you were born. It was actually uh, Southern Africa, not South Africa, as I said. What was your family doing out there? Because your dad is Manx, isn't Yeah, he? my dad's Manx. I don't know. I think Manx people have a great tradition of travelling, really. So my dad... Um, when he left school, he was about, I suppose, 14, and he went into the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company as uh, and trained to become a, a um, an engineer. So he then ended up travelling the world in the Merchant Navy and somehow ended up in Africa, where he met my mum, who was on voluntary service overseas as a teacher, and then they had my sister, and then we moved down to Lesotho, which is where I was born, so... Yeah, I think I was very lucky to have that strange, really, upbringing out in Southern Africa. I suppose at such a young age, you didn't know any different. But what do you remember about your school days out there? Well, school was very different to here. I suppose we were in Lesotho, which is um, a small landlocked country within South Africa. And um, my sister and I ended up having to go to school across the border in in Lady Brand. So we, it was um, during the apartheid era, so we went to a whites only school, and once a week we had our terrorist drill where we'd have to quickly sneak out the back door and go around the ditch around the school and then come back in. And um, it was 1984 when we decided to move back, and it was because there were so many uprisings and troubles, and there were border strikes, and so it just felt time for us to come back. And at that point, you were nine years of age. Nine. How do you cope with coming back to, to the Isle of Man, a place which is just so incredibly different from what you were used to? Well, it was it was awful, really, because in South Africa, it's a very, very strict schooling regime. Like, if you couldn't read your words, you'd get a ruler across your leg. And if you talked in class, you'd get into a lot of trouble. And then we came back to here, and it was just so different in school. And... Um, it was just as the I've never met a nice South African song came out. So I was like the target for any bullying whatsoever. We weren't was, that bad, were we? You were terrible. Oh, my All goodness of you. me. Yeah, we I should point out that you two did go to school together. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. And, um, you know, I wasn't even allowed to talk in an assembly once because apparently I talked too slow. And that has stuck with me. It's interesting because your accent is really difficult to place, but do you think you made a conscious effort to change the way you spoke when you realised it yeah, really did set you apart? Definitely, and my sister was brilliant at it. She just switched into a more neutral accent as soon as we got here, but I think it took me a lot longer. You hated school then. You I couldn't wait like to school. leave. Um, you left, what, two weeks before your 16th yeah, birthday. I know, yeah. Ben was like, you couldn't have left school at... 15 and I was saying I did so we were working it out this morning and it was it was just before my 16th birthday and I didn't really know what I wanted to do but I'd worked part time at the Groudle Glen pub for you know two or three years before that and I loved it there's something about the catering industry it's really I don't know really fun and there's lots of adrenaline and uh, 
you know, it's great. It's a great team of people, and I just loved that. So it it was just a sort of easy choice for me to go to catering college. And um, I don't know. I I just don't think I was ready for. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was very lucky. My mum, I think she saw how sort of lost I was. I suppose, and my sister was going off to work. I don't know. She was doing some trip with um operation rally in zimbabwe so my mum said look just go and meet kathleen and yeah at 16 i I went off with my backpack you've got three young children can you imagine them doing something similar at such a young age i don't know i do sometimes think wow my mum and dad what were they thinking but i don't know i think i'd like to feel that i have enough trust in my children to know that you know, there's only a few things you have to do in life to get on, which is, you know, be self-aware, be confident, be polite. And um, I think that can get you a lot of places. So, People who have gone through very stressful, frightening or distressing events can be at risk of developing a condition called post-traumatic stress disorder. And this typically involves things like sleep disturbance, constant and vivid memories of the experience and sometimes dulled response to others and the outside world. We're joined in the studio now by uh, Lara Elliott. Lara, just tell us your story and your association with PTSD? Um, Well, my husband, Matthew, served in the forces for nine years. He he suffers from PTSD due to incidents in Iraq. He was an ambulance commander and he probably saw things that most people would think were a horror film. Not nice. Definitely nothing that you would like to remember. Um, He... He suffers quite severely from sleep disorders. He um, he can't cope with strange noises. Fireworks are a particular bugbear to him. If if there is fireworks going off that we aren't prepared for, November the fifth, fine, we can do that. That's 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 a regular occurrence. We can as long as he's watching the fireworks, it's fine. Um, but it's it's causes anger issues there are triggers where if we go off island he becomes something that they call hypervigilant so he's aware of more things around that he maybe shouldn't be aware of he uh, watches clear roads he watches um, other people very the trust is is not the best so you know it's not a very not a very nice disorder to have and Lara I I can't begin to imagine how it must have changed your life with him um it's we were we were only we'd only been married for six months before before it all happened well before he went to Iraq so he arrived back after seven months of service over there and he wasn't the same the man I married so it's it's very much I am I've got used to to Matthew now as opposed to the Matthew I knew for four and a half years before we were married so it's a it's a different we get we get through through life because we have to so well Matthew um is also with us this afternoon 
I'm guessing this must be an incredibly difficult thing for you to talk about, Matthew, but in your words, from your point of view, how has this disorder changed your life? Um, it's... Well, it's, it's like pretty much what Lara said, really. It's not me, really. Um, I never used to get angry uh, before I joined the army, or indeed before I went up to Iraq. Um, I was took everything in the stride, really. Even Lara's having to go at me, he's going one ear and out of the other, which is, <laughs> as ever, about normal, I think, really. Then, uh, I don't know, I think uh, just being over there, or indeed Afghanistan as well, um, you just don't know if something happens really you just switch something off and someone else comes back on again you just come back and you just uh, you're just totally different and at what yeah. point were you diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, I was diagnosed I think it's two two and a half years ago I believe I can't remember now so, um, and this, I've been getting help ever since well, really part fun. of that help was um, in Ayrshire at a place called Combat Stress. So what sort of things do they do to support people who've got PTSD? Uh, you're up there for six weeks, predominantly, and uh, you're in there talking to a psychiatrist, um, which turn out to be your best friends and all the rest of it. So, And uh, they, they don't... You're not doing just doing one thing. There's various things you just do. There's a garden you can do, or there's a rec room, recreation room. Just go in there and do whatever you want to, really. Um, failing that, you can just go out with lads you've made friends with and just go up into the town, just together, looking after each other, and just yeah, just get the problems out that you can't really do with, unfortunately, with Lara. I think we're probably all quite familiar with the idea that people who have been through events um, that you have in the armed mm. forces might suffer from PTSD but does it always have to be extreme events or can can other sort of lesser things trigger this disorder in people? Um, well I do know of people who have had operations that have gone wrong and things like that and they have now been diagnosed with PTSD so it's not actually um, it's not all the armed forces and it's not you don't you don't if you join the armed forces you won't come out with PTSD it's your your psychological makeup has has a a big meaning and and part of of PTSD ever coming about and there are some people who can have left the army for years and years and years and then suddenly something will trigger the the PTSD coming so you may you may well have I, I actually spoke to a friend of ours who is a traffic officer police officer in the UK and he rang me because they'd had a they pulled over a chap who was having a panic panic attack in the fog and he'd been out the army for 20 years and never had any sign of PTSD and or anything he'd never had and then he just completely went over something that had triggered a memory that he didn't even remember and and my friend rang rang us and said I think this is PTSD I'm not sure but what do I do where do I go who do I send him to because they got him in the cells because they didn't know this chap couldn't cope with it with anything and he was just like and and so I mean it can be it can it can affect anybody it, it's not it's it's doesn't have to be a major thing it's just something that 
has affected you. So, you know, it may well be that falling down the stairs apparently can do it. It's not a, it's not just the armed forces. That it can be anything. But uh, it just so happens that we've experienced it that way. It's, uh, you know... And is it something that can be cured? Is it something that always stays with you once it has been diagnosed? You can... You can... So, I don't know, actually. You can... Uh, some parts you can make better, but the rest of it you just have to live with and just keep on going, just take it in your stride, I suppose, really, which is what I've been doing since I've been getting help. So it's, it, it is hard. It is hard. It's not... Uh, like I said, it's not the best thing to have in the world you know, it's just horrible and on a day-to-day basis i'm guessing the way it affects you will depend on, on i guess just how you're feeling on any particular day but in terms of work now what is it that you do i'm a part-time no, no i'm not self-employed <laughs> sorry so, uh, self-employed guy on the tree surgeon and uh, the only reason why i went self-employed is because i can't work with um pardon the pun civilians really it doesn't um it it just doesn't help me at all so I just don't I'm not being funny but I just don't get on with anybody else really so hence why I'm working by myself so that's and a few things have happened you have an employee I do have an employee now yeah but um, but uh, it's it's a fact that I don't know I nearly nearly basically hurt somebody last time and it just didn't really uh, doesn't really do for me to have somebody else when you say yeah. that you don't get on with other people, is that something that you struggled with before Afghanistan, or was that because of it? No, no, it was uh, it was it was after Iraq, really. Um, well, it was after I left the army. Um, it's the fact that the the army is a family, is a family, and you leave that family, and you end up going into a, a strange world, which is for me, Siri Street. Um, and it's just, I, I don't know what it is. It's it's not the again, not being funny, but you haven't got the same personality as what the we have or what the army have and uh it's just i don't know i, I couldn't do with working somebody who hasn't got a bit of a dark twisted sense of humor which unfortunately i've developed after iraq um but yeah so i much prefer working by myself women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away now, before the break, we heard Kate's interview with the Radio 1 DJ Gemma Kearney and Lauren Pariola-Birch about this so-called invincibility culture and condom use by young people. So let's talk about uh, this notion of invincibility, first of all, and the fact that uh, so many young people, those people aged between 16 and 24, think, you know, don't have to borrow the wearing a condom, it's never going to happen to me. Joe, do you think this is a, a real concept? I was one of them. That's all I can say. I absolutely was one of them. I reckon when I was growing up, I was the one that was kind of, you know, I'm not going to go on and talk to you about my um, past previous experiences, but I was definitely the one that would think it's never going to happen to me. You know, I would think um, you would hear about the scare stories, but yeah, I did feel invincible. I always did, like it was never going to happen to me. Um, But I never, I went to a girls' boarding school and I've never had the chat about condoms from either school or my parents um, and it was always something I was kind of I think very very nervous of but I would have definitely left it down to the guy to look after that department not me. Mm. You've got two children now both both pretty much in teenage years so how 
do you, I don't know, how do you think about your teenage daughter thinking the same way as you? Oh, no, she's not going to think like me. She's far too sensible. No, I, it worries me. It scares me. Look at those shocking figures that 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds admitting they've had sex more than one person, you know, without a condom. And it is worrying thinking that in a couple of years' time, that is going to be possibly my daughter. So it is time to have that chat, sit down and explain to them about condoms. But I know they won't want to have it because... They get mortified, don't they? But you want them to really hear. You do want them to have that chat and for them to understand so that they don't come into that percentage. OK, Kate, you are still just, just. in that uh, 16 to 24-year-old bracket. Um, what do you think of it? Invincibility? Do you, is that something that, that you agree with, that you think is true? Yeah, I think it probably is. I, I think the whole idea of an invincibility culture I think when you're when you are young and I think I tellingly I think I probably have come to the end of that age bracket and also don't no no longer feel that invincible as well but I think when you are young you always feel like it's going to happen to someone else not just in terms of STIs or pregnancy but in terms of every kind of situation you put yourself in you think oh no I'll be fine you never think it's going to happen to you or your friends so to be honest I wasn't that shocked when I read these statistics um yeah, I wasn't that shocked at all. Do you know, I'm, I don't agree, actually, that it is just a, a natural thing of, of being young that you think you're invincible or, or I am just the most risk-averse person <laughs> in the whole world. And I had, you know, my mum was so open with me about things like this. There was never any subject that we couldn't broach, was never anything we couldn't talk about, and, and I knew about sex from a really early age. And I wonder if that meant that I was just not interested but also I was possibly yeah a little bit more aware of the risks and, and thought mm, I, I don't want to risk it actually. so thinking about condoms did you rely upon the guy to provide the condom at the time you're suggesting that I was in that position actually I wasn't interested that's that's the point I wasn't I just I and would I've relied on the guy no I don't think I would have done actually no I don't think I would have done would you um uh, I'm going to blush. Um, uh, I uh, I don't want to answer your question. Um, yeah, I probably probably at 16 probably would have relied on someone else. Yeah. So how can we get then if we're talking about young women? How can we get them to take this seriously? Well, I do think that one of the the big problems for for me and for I think in general is that when we talk about um, contraception we are so focused on not getting pregnant and I think in schools especially when I was at school we were taught you know teenage pregnancy was almost like the worst thing you could do and I don't think that's the case anyway but it was such a focus on pregnancy as opposed to everything else that I kind of still think there's an attitude that says if you've kind of sorted out that side of things if you are on some sort of other contraception that you don't really need to worry about everything else but so I think we need to bring the focus back to STIs and therefore kind of condoms and barrier methods. I think that's such a valid point that we don't just focus on pregnancy but we also focus on STIs and I think the, the best way to actually do it is through images and I actually think that um, just how I'd show my children that if they ate too much sugar they might get their teeth rotten if they didn't clean them I'd show them pictures um, of what rotten teeth look like. I actually think at the right stage I would sit them down talk to them about condoms, talk to them about STIs and also show them images possibly. That's a really interesting point you've just raised there though what is the right stage? I mean, your children are teenagers. Should you not have done this before now? Do you I'm think? going to go home tonight and I'm going to have that chat. 
So if you're listening, children, be warned. Um, but no, now, 14, yeah. And I think also perhaps the time, obviously, when periods start, menstruation um, within a, a girl, I think it's always a good time to have that chat because I think she'd be more open for discussions knowing that her body's changing. I think for a boy, slightly need to be a little bit more mature because um, I can imagine exactly what my son would do at the age of 11, probably run out the room and scream. But um, no, I think maybe... Um, about 14, 15 is a good time, possibly. I really like the point you raised about showing images and what difference that could make. And uh, they, obviously it can be quite shocking. But I think the problem is, though, with a lot of STIs, there aren't any physical symptoms. So I don't know how you kind of make the point that some of those ones, for example, chlamydia, where you are unlikely to see any changes, how are you going to make that as shocking and then make them take it as seriously? Do we want to make it shocking? Do we want to shock them, though? I thought that's what you were... Yeah, I suppose, yeah I suppose with the images, it's kind of is, it is a shocking approach. But yes, I agree. If there are obviously photographs where you can't show because there is nothing to show, um, I think that's where you need to be clued up in yourself to be able to give the right description without using big words, without being too scary, but giving a good image of it. Um, Laura Elliott, I'm going to assume that you have not approached this subject with your two very young boys at the moment. Is this a conversation, though, that you worry about having? Um... Well, not really. As we said before, my, what is he, seven and a half? He'll be eight in February. When when I was in hospital having the younger one, who is five, because I was in hospital for three weeks, the nurses told him about everything, and he was two. So I think he's pretty clued up on, on what actually... He, he even, even in reception at, at Russian primary, he had discussions with everybody about about the the tadpoles that go and find the egg and and sometimes you have to you have to cover yourself up so your tadpoles don't get out so you know at, at five he knew that so I'm thinking he's probably clued up and the younger one if if he ever ever goes anywhere near anything like that we'll just have to lock him in a cupboard because or just get his big brother to tell him get all about bit, it. Um, I'm sure I won't actually have to say that anything to him. But you know, probably tell him. Do you know? I would. I would rather that. I would rather that they have that awareness because then the, there isn't the the embarrassment that goes with it. They grow up just knowing all about it, and it's just not the big issue. Then you don't have to do that. Right. I'm going to sit down and give you the full talk now because if you answer the questions as truthfully and as honestly and give them as much information as they need at any stage, then surely that just deals with it. Why aren't we doing that more? I, I don't know, because that's exactly the family that I was brought up in. If you ask a question, you get an honest answer and a sensible answer as long as you genuinely want to know the answer. So I think and that's a good time as well to raise all those other points, like you say. And it's a good time to know that they're ready for it. I think it, the reason for that, do you know what it is? It's simple. We don't have family dinners anymore together. I think sitting down as a family and just chatting about things and being open about things, I think this is because we live in a culture where there are phones, there's social media, there's other things to be doing. Kids have got TVs in their bedrooms. They're not sat at meals together. So they're not getting to know each other perhaps as a family as much. And maybe that's what we may need to be doing more of. You know, you're... Preach over. You know you invited me around for dinner later. I probably won't tonight, if that's okay. Uh, we've got a few thoughts on this. Uh, thinking about the invincibility culture, Nige says, the part of your brain that processes content, 
a concept of consequences isn't fully developed until about the age of 25. And uh, he says that is the basis of this. Oh, a month and a day to go for me. Excited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also just had a comment from Bonzo who said, uh, did you know the Spice Girls to become one was written as a promotion for condom use? Girl power in action. I'll be honest, not what I took from that song. Well, uh, here's another song that was uh, written, and I, I'm going to apologise in advance for this, but this is all about safe sex as well, you know. Yo, I don't think we should talk about oh, this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. We are joined today by the Manx Bard and before the break, Stacey Astle set us a little challenge. Stacey, just remind us what we had to do. Okay, the challenge was to write a haiku for us. So that's a short poem, which is five syllables, then seven syllables, then five over three lines. Right, okay. Um, There was some furious scribbling during the break. (laughs) Um, Kate, would you like to uh, set us going? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, this is my haiku. Sitting here on air, words spilling and red lights on. I am so thirsty. Oh, nice. Thank you. Joe? Long. Mine's quite short. And I Joe, don't... They should be exactly the same length. That's <laughs> yeah, the whole I point know. of a haiku. I don't think mine is. <laughs> he was never going to get this right. I didn't even know what a haiku was. Couldn't even spell it. I didn't even pronounce it. Boots woke up. Flip flops hibernate. Fall has come. Okay. Do you want mine? What? <laughs> <laughs> What was the first line? Sorry, boots woke up. I boots. thought Is that about it because my I thought I thought about it because my boots are on. Okay, um, <laughs> Stacey, here's mine. Great. Girls are on the air. Some laughing, crying, joking. The wind here blows strong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you did mention prizes. I don't I want to bring you back to the prizes, but you did mention prizes. I'm assuming uh, old Joe there is out of the thing. There weren't, definitely weren't five syllables in that first line. But it was fantastic anyway. Uh, Thanks. So it doesn't you. matter. And I liked the boots part. That was excellent about the waking up. I'm not being funny, but I googled that before I came on the program, so I'm going to have to go to whoever wrote that on Google and put, I'm tapped for word. I cheated. Totally cheated. Okay, Stacey, um, take us through the other two. What did you think? So I, I really liked them. Um, I, I quite enjoyed the bit about the wind blowing strong because it is occasionally there, there is a bag flying past the window um, but I'm afraid because I am also so thirsty I am I'm going to have to award the prize here yes. so here we go there is your oh, baking prize that's brilliant I'm so pleased for you oh Beth you look really happy I for am. me thank, thank you Kate, so Kate, much Kate. one all oh yes ah We'd like to end today's show by hearing once more from our guest, the Manx Bard, Stacey Astle. Uh, Stacey, take it away. This poem is called Man. I've breathed this island. Marshmallows and crackers, smoke from secret, youthful fires, lit with crumbling books, well-versed with crawling, gnawing worms, hungry for words but met with flame. I've walked this island. Ankles much twisted in plantation on hill through field. Sand from beaches tramped home, shells collected, stones weighing pockets, clinging to cronk and splashing through shallows. I've rode this island, first past, touring from southern beauty to northern expanses, western cliffs and all in between. Desperate jumpy horseback hacks clinging to thick heavy mane, juddering bikes rode and pushed uphill to slide back down, pedalling forgotten. 
I've left this island. Tears, cars, trains, boats, planes, nights spent in thudding, ruckus clubs, days on the Tyne, Hadrian's proud wall, rolling fields by crumbling leftovers and never forgotten friends. But I've returned to this island. It's in my bones. There's nowhere else to be. Sun dropping behind blackening castle. Sky further than you can see. Dunes and sand. Endless, endless sand. Seals singing and flopping, twisting ever out of focus. There's views which my camera cannot pass to you. Trees which are yet to be climbed. I have returned to this island. It's in my bones. Have you ever made the mistake of asking someone when they're due only to find out that they are not actually pregnant? Now, this is because uh, there was a flight attendant on an Australian airline who's been left red-faced after he did just that. However, Greta Anderson has complained to the airline that the attendant showed no remorse in asking her the rude question. She alleges the attendant had gestured at his stomach and asked her, how many weeks are you? So she then took to Facebook to say, I used to be quite heavily overweight and even then was never, ever met by such a rude question and especially no remorse from the flight attendant. Um, So just wondering what you think about this. Is it an innocent mistake, a a rude question in the first place? Have you ever been in a similar position? Have you ever made that mistake and asked someone, Kate, when perhaps you should have kept your mouth shut? No. No, I haven't. I mean, who would do a thing like that? I don't know, Beth. I don't know. It's almost... Oh, it's just, almost unbelievable that someone would do something like that. I don't think. <laughs> when are we I back on air? Is it on Monday? <laughs> All right, I'm going. Sit down, lady. Okay. Yes, I have done it. Really? Yes, typical me. Mouth like a Mersey tunnel. Um. So, oh. so I do apologise the person now on air that I did do it to. Um. But yeah, I I have actually commented and said, um, yeah, when is the baby due? <sighs> Why would you I didn't do that? say it directly like that, but I'm just making a long story short. Why yeah. would you do that though? Why? Um, Unless you're absolutely. I was, I was much younger. Sure. I was much younger, and oh. um, yeah, it, 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 yeah. I just can't. I cannot apologise enough because it was the most ridiculous you thing to must. ever say. Oh. But it's it's as bad as wearing spotty pants oh, through see-through leggings. On. Whatever. I, well, is that one of your motivational techniques when you used to encourage people to lose weight? Just <laughs> one of your lines. <laughs> really, Alex Brinley, I cannot believe you even said that. There were a few. There were a few times I was asking if they've oh been. No, I never did. Oh. I never did. I never did. I never did. Yeah. Do you know? I just think. I didn't know men could get pregnant, Alex. Oh. <laughs> I just think ever commenting on a woman's figure, and even if you know for certain that they're pregnant, never, ever, ever comment on their bump size. Never say, "Oh, you're looking big." Oh, you're looking too small. I can't stand it. I really can't stand it. Um, Steve says, I get asked nearly every day. doesn't bother me. <laughs> We've had one uh, from Scylla who says, whilst at the NSC once, I had a little boy repeatedly ask me why my mummy was so fat if I didn't have a baby in it. The boy's father was literally banging his head on a wall with embarrassment <laughs> and the boy wouldn't let it drop. Clearly, my image as an elite athlete needs working on. <laughs> I'm wondering if maybe she thought it was a boy or just somebody with very, very short hair. <laughs> <laughs> Do another one. Uh, Simone says, I used to work with a girl whose natural curves were very much the same as the woman in the famous Reuben, Reuben, I forgot how to say it, paintings. She was constantly telling me about how somebody had asked her whilst shopping in the supermarket or the hairdressers or just taking the rubbish out whether she was expecting. She was great and didn't really take it to heart most of the time as she was happy with her curves. So whenever I see somebody who is potentially pregnant, no matter how curious I am, I remember my old workmate and I think to myself, well, if she is, you'll see her with a pram in a few months I have to make an apology however I will stop being so honest on air I think I have to do that I think I have to I think probably best yeah
You heap the logs and try to fill the little room with words and cheer. But silent feet are on the hill, across the window veiled eyes peer. The hosts of lovers, young in death, go seeking down the world tonight, remembering faces, warmth and breath, and they shall seek till it is light. Then let the white flaked logs burn low, lest those who drift before the storm see gladness on our hearth and know there is no flame can make them warm. Good afternoon. It's just gone seven minutes past two and this is Women Today on Manx Radio with me, Beth Espy. And me, Kate Holland. On the programme this afternoon, a spooky special. As we approach Halloween, or Hopchune, as we should call it over here, we're going to be talking the origins, traditions, and also our modern-day obsession with the other side. So, are you a believer? Have you ever seen a ghost? Or do you just think it's all a load of rubbish? Let us know what you think. Women Today at manxradio.com. You can text 166177 or go to the Women Today Facebook page. On Twitter, you can follow us as well. It's at MR Women Today. So as it is nearly Hotchinay or Halloween for the uninitiated, we thought we'd talk about all sorts of things supernatural on today's programme. And we're joined by the man behind Isle of Man Ghost Tours, Alan Shaw, and also Emma Wells, who's a medium. Now I should say at this point that Kate has been really open before about being completely cynical about this whole sort of thing, haven't you? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I am a uh, well and truly a cynic, really, when it comes to this. But um, I'm open to hearing what you guys have to say. So, Alan Shaw, how are you going to convince Kate that uh, there is something in what you believe? I think we should set a challenge. Maybe one evening, one stormy, dark, horrible, wet evening. We should venture up here with the equipment and we should see what we can find. You up for that, Kate? Up to Manx Radio and see what we can find. Oh, yes. Because it is supposed to be haunted, isn't it, here? Yeah, that's the main reason why I can't be here late at night. It is a really terrifying building anyway. But you're really cynical, so I don't get that whole... But it's just, but yeah, maybe I'm just scared of the dark or, you know, reflections and lights on, on windows mm. and stuff. So we'll Alan, see. Alan, where did your, I'm going to call it an obsession, but your interest then in, in ghosts and supernatural things, where did that come from? It started when I was eight years old. Uh, I lived in Morecambe. And we went on a school trip to Lancaster Castle. When you go on the trip, you spend the first hour talking about all the family coats of arms around the wall. And as an eight-year-old boy, you'd lose a bit of interest after a while. But then they take you downstairs into the dungeons. And, of course, they close the door on you and it's pitch black. You start to get a bit of interest. But then they start to talk about the Pendle Witch Trials, the Lancaster Witch Assizes, which took place there. And also the ghostly legacy, which you left behind. By which point, as an eight-year-old child, I was hooked. And have you ever actually seen a real-life ghost? I've seen what I believe could have been two ghosts. One was in a building in Peel, and one was down at Castletown. Okay. Uh, We are also joined by Emma Wells, who I introduce you, Emma, as a medium. Now, just tell us exactly what that means, first of all. Okay, I have a belief that uh, we can in some way communicate with... Is it spirits? Is it energy? Is it um, something else? There is. I have. I've been given lucky enough to be given enough proof in my life of. I've seen spirit. I've heard spirit. But is it spirit? I don't know. I. I can't answer that. I'd like to know, and that's what I'd like to spend my time with the ghost tours. People doing is actually giving myself proof because I doubt myself. I'm so full of self, lack of self confidence because I know what I can do, but I can't prove that to you. I can't show you what's going on in my mind. I can't tell you how I get the answers I do. So I want to spend my time 
you know, helping others get an idea of what this is. And when did you have a first experience of this? Wow. The, the, gosh. Um, my The first main experience. Now, this is an interesting psychological one because I used to live by myself. And when I went to bed at night, I used to look at the bottom of my bed and I used to see my granddad who died standing at the bottom of my bed. And if I saw him there, I was okay to go to sleep. Now, is that psychological, that I needed somebody in the house to know I was safe, or was I really seeing my granddad? That's interesting. No one else can answer that. I can't answer that. But I want to know. I want to know. Does that mean for you, then, this um, this skill or, or talent, I don't know how you refer to it, but it's actually quite a comfort? It can be. It can be an absolute comfort. I think it can be a comfort for a lot of people. But what I would hate is for anybody to be taken advantage of. I would hate for anybody to be uh, pressurised into a belief. I would hate for anybody to be told a deceased relative is there. I want them to be able to see it. There's no point in me telling you about something that's happened to you. I can tell you, but I could also tell you lots of lies. Okay, I need you to see it for yourself, and hopefully we will find a way where we can do this or not. Because I'm happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> it's interesting because, I mean, as you touched on there, Emma, people are often very desperate for a sign when they're bereaved yep. from somebody that they were close to. And it does make them really, really vulnerable. And, and there's a real need for responsibility, especially as far as mediums are concerned. Definitely. I think we're very lucky. I've worked, I've been friends with and worked a lot with a lot of mediums on the island. I haven't seen one who I would class as irresponsible. I'm sure there are some out there. I'm positive there are some out there. But I'm lucky enough that I haven't witnessed somebody be irresponsible. What they get and what they give, I can't say that's correct or not. But I have, I've never seen anybody go out of their way to do harm or hurt anybody, which is brilliant, which I can say we are very lucky. And in terms of, of the power or however you, <laughs> you think it is that you have, how does that sort of present itself within you? Is it a feeling? Do you see things? Do you hear things? Okay. Um, have you ever walked into a room and thought, I don't feel very comfortable here? It's happened occasionally, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or have you met a person and thought straight away, I really like them? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So, okay. How do you get that feeling? I suppose you'd refer to it as a gut reaction. Gut reaction. You? So where does a gut reaction come from? Explore it. Why have I got a gut reaction about this room? Why have I got a gut reaction about this feeling? Question it. Ask yourself, um, does that mean that, that you have a spirit guide that's telling you you're on the right path, you're in the right room? Does it mean that there's an energy that's presenting itself that you're connected to? Again, we need proof. We need to find out what is a gut reaction. You've seen The Apprentice. Alan Sugar sits there and he says, I have a gut reaction about you. You know, I'm not going to fire you. You're fired. I have a gut reaction. He can't give a logical reason behind it, but he has a gut reaction. We've all got that, but let's take it one step further. But Why? I, su I suppose those gut reactions are often, I would have thought, 
based on tiny minute things that you're picking up almost subconsciously from mm -hmm. someone so I might think I meet Beth for the first time I really like her straight away but it might be that you know she just happens to be smiling when I walked in the room but I didn't notice she was smiling but subconsciously I picked up on that definitely okay another option have you known who's on the phone before it rings that is creepy when you do that isn't okay. it when you do think you I do was it. just thinking about you <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you do it you know I told you the story before the program that um, my best friend and I wonderful person we sat and had a game of Pictionary uh, you know you're supposed to draw a picture you're supposed to pick a card out and draw a picture she picked a card out and I'm able to go hedgehog and she hasn't put a pen to the board I pick a card out and she says car I haven't put a pen to the board. Everyone else thinks we're cheating. I can't explain to you why that happens. Is that an energy link? Is that telepathy? What is it? I need to know. I want to know. Alan Shaw, what is it? <laughs> I just don't know. I wish I did. But I totally agree with the, the, the feeling of buildings we mentioned before. It's like you must have been into the gaiety many times. When you go in there, you've just got a beautiful presence, a beautiful feel about the place. It's so full of energy. I once spoke to Brian Murray, the general manager, some years ago, and I was talking to him. I said, how many people have actually been into the gaiety? He said, we'll start at a couple of million and we'll continue from there. It's, if you think about the energy inside that building, people have been in there, they've clapped, cheered, danced in the aisles, had a great time. It's left that energy inside the building. I think that's what we're picking up when you go, when you go into a place like that. Well, the Gaiety Theatre is one of the places that people often talk about on the Isle of Man as being seriously haunted through. So I just wonder if you've experienced that side of the Gaiety as well. Oh, we certainly have. You've got to ask yourself a question. If you was a ghost and you had a choice of where to haunt, where would you haunt? Would you go into Peel Castle, where it's only open five or six months of the year? And in the winter, it's absolutely freezing cold. You could go down to Castle Russian. It's got a roof on, it's got heating. It's still, you still be on your own. Or would you go to the Gaiety Theatre, Frank Matcham's masterpiece, where you'd see shows free of charge every night? It has to be the Gaiety. Two things I did on Hallow's Night made my house April clear, left open wide my door to the ghosts of the year. Then one came in. Across the room, it stood up long and fair, the ghost that was myself and gave me stare for stare. Thanks, as always, to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page, and you can comment there, or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.